Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, October 26, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Peace talks between Ethiopia and Tigray continue today in South Africa. The peace talks which have been convened to find a peaceful and sustainable solution to the devastating conflict in the Tigray region started today, the 25th of October, and will end on the 30th of October. United Arab Emirates reportedly announces visit of visa ban on nationals of some 20 African countries. Liberia dedicates a state-of-the-art oxygen production plant. Nigeria marks digital currency anniversary but still struggles. Zimbabwe tries to rally local support against Western sanctions. The sanctions regime undermines the tenets of the human factor approach of nations in pursuit of sustainable socio-economic development. In our seventh of ten profiles of the first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups, those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Africa's presidential spokesperson says the first round of peace talks on the conflict between Ethiopia and the Tigray region have begun. Few other details have been released, and so far there has been no media access to the venue at an unknown location in South Africa. Kate Bartley reports from Johannesburg. South African presidential spokesman Vincent Maguena told reporters on Tuesday that the talks, which had previously been delayed, were underway. The peace talks which have been convened to find a peaceful and sustainable solution to the devastating conflict in the Tigray region started today, the 25th of October, and will end on the 30th of October. Word of the discussions comes after the Ethiopian government side and the leadership of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, confirmed they had left for South Africa on Monday. The talks are being led by former Nigerian leader and the African Union's Horn of Africa envoy, Alusigan Abasanjo, along with South Africa's former deputy president, Pumzili Mlamo Nkuka, and Kenya's former president, Yohuru Kenyatta. The African Union Commission said in a statement that representatives of the United Nations and the United States government were participating as observers. AU Commission Chairman Musa Faki Matmad said he was encouraged by the early demonstration of commitment to peace by the parties and to seek a lasting political solution to the conflict in the supreme interest of Ethiopia. The statement added, The chairperson reiterates the AU's continued commitment to support the parties in an Ethiopian-owned and AU-led process to silence the guns towards a united, stable, peaceful and resilient Ethiopia. Fighting in Tigray has intensified over the past week, with the Ethiopian government aiming to seize the region's airports and other infrastructure. The government said Monday its forces had continued taking control of major urban centers in the past few days. Tens of thousands of people have been killed and millions more displaced since the Tigray conflict broke out in November 2020. The TPLF dominated Ethiopian politics for decades before being sidelined when Prime Minister Abe Ahmed took office in 2018. Abe was initially seen as a peacemaker after settling Ethiopia's long-running conflict with neighboring Eritrea. That image, however, has been shattered by the war in Tigray, and human rights groups have accused both sides of atrocities. 
The United States and European Union have both expressed hope the peace talks in South Africa will be successful. Kate Bartlett, VOA News, Johannesburg. Hundreds of Zimbabweans turned out on Tuesday for rallies against Western sanctions that the government has long blamed for the country's economic troubles. The sanctions, some of which date back to 20 years, were imposed in response to alleged election rigging and rights abuses on the former President Robert Mugabe, who died in 2019. The United States and Britain maintain that the targeted sanctions are not the cause of Zimbabwe's problems. Columbus Mavunga reports from Bulawayo. About 500 Zimbabweans gathered in the city of Bulawayo on Tuesday for an anti-sanctions rally organized by the ruling ZANU-PF party. They say sanctions imposed by Western countries on the country's leadership in the 2000s are hurting the country. One of the demonstrators was Mabuto Moyom. He says U.S. and British sanctions caused the collapse of Zimbabwe's economy because industries could no longer get lines of credit. People lose jobs and uh, the loss of jobs leads to poverty and poverty ultimately to higher rates of mortality as we have seen in Zimbabwe. But as Zimbabwe, we've remained resilient. We have not allowed ourselves to just cry. And in the leadership, through the leadership of Comrade Emerson Nangakwa, we've said we are not going to beg for anyone's support. Zimbabwe's Vice President, Konstantino Chwenga, read a speech from Nangakwa that was aired on national television. The sanctions regime undermines the tenets of the human factor approach of nations in pursuit of sustainable socio-economic development. They are an attack on the freedoms and on the sovereignty of Zimbabwe. Further, the illegal sanctions defy the fundamentals and precepts of international law. They challenge the notion of equality of nations and the values of global governance enshrined in the United Nations Charter. U.S. British and European officials have long rejected Zimbabwe's accusations, saying that the sanctions target individuals and certain companies rather than state institutions. They say mismanagement of the economy is the key factor behind Zimbabwe's long economic slump, which dates back to the year 2000. Last week, James O'Brien, the U.S. State Department's sanctions coordinator told an online press briefing that U.S. sanctions are not hurting Zimbabwe's economy as they do not affect banks. A much bigger problem, he says, is the tax revenue lost from billions of dollars in black market cross-border transactions that take place each year. On Tuesday, the British Embassy in Harare released a statement saying its sanctions list had only five people for human rights violations and serious corruption. It added that these measures do not affect trade or economic measures. Trade between the United Kingdom and Zimbabwe was $175 million last year, and we are working hard to increase this. The embassy said we want Zimbabwe to succeed. Anything to suggest that the UK wants to harm Zimbabwe is simply false. Zimbabwe declared October 25 the anti-sanctions day, and the Mnangawa's government called for the protests asking for regional bloc 
Southern African Development Community to support it. The government says Zimbabwe is still being punished for the land reform program Adam Gabe in 2000, which forcefully displaced white commercial farmers from their land and gave it to black Zimbabweans. Columbus Mavungam for VOA News, Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. The United Arab Emirates has reportedly banned nationals of some 20 African countries from entering the country on visitor visas. In a notice issued to trade partners, including travel agents, the UAE authorities indicated that all applicants should be rejected. According to media reports, many people, especially Africans seeking to work in UAE, mostly in Dubai, have in the past been using the 30-day visitor visas as a scapegoat to stay in the country. Uganda nationals are among those banned from entering the UAE on visitor visas. Douglas Umpuga reached Uganda's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Henry Okello Oyam, for his reaction. Well, this is a very unfortunate development, uh, and it's, it's unfortunate that it's come to this. And uh, the government of Uganda does not blame the UAE government for the decision taken to change the visa regime and reduce the time period for visa uh, visas. Uh, this has come about simply because many people from African countries, including Uganda, who went to the UAE on visas visa, overstayed their visa period and uh, became a nuisance to the UAE uh, government in the different ways. Some of them got involved in illegal activities, some of them became vagabonds on the streets, some of them became beggars, and so on and so forth. So um, this is a matter that we now need to engage the UAE government and find uh, an amicable solution to resolve it and find a, a new regime whereby people can uh, be able to get uh, visas of 30 days and beyond. And we hope that soon once we get official communication, the UAE will be able to start uh, uh, engage them officially to find an amicable solution to this matter. So have you begun the initiative to negotiate with the UAE government? We have uh, indicated to them that we are waiting for an official communication, and we, I'm sure that uh, they, them being efficient as they normally are will give us official communication within the, this week, and we are prepared our position as to what we want to suggest to them on how best they should go, we, we should in future deal with Ugandans intend to go there on visas visas. Mind you uh, that each country will have to negotiate its own deal uh, in light of what has happened. Different countries have different engagements with the UAE and Uganda will negotiate its own package with the UAE government. I understand if you look at the countries that have been banned, most are from East and West Africa. None is from the North or South. Why is that? Well, it is because uh, the, the citizens of those countries have, uh, as especially the North and the South, have not uh, broken the immigration, strict immigration rules that the UAE have, and have not uh, taken advantage of the visa visas to go and overstay in the UAE. I must say that the UAE are very generous with their visas in the past, giving you uh, sometimes uh, people uh, 30 days and more, and uh, this has allowed individuals who are unscrupulous to try and take advantage of that, those long days to try and look for jobs and other opportunities, and once they have failed, they then resort to overstaying and then get involved in activities that are not uh, within the terms of their visa. And finally, there are reports of a number of Ugandans who are stranded there uh, because I think of violating their visa status there. There are quite many Ugandans who are, were stranded there because of uh, breach of their visa regime. I must say that they were given amnesty by the UAE government. However, you, you have to report to the detention center uh, in order to get uh, amnesty. Some are a bit slow because they are not sure 
intention of being uh, invited to the detention center. Some thought they would be mistreated. Some thought they would be jailed. But now on recognition that those who reported at the detention center, most of them have been flown back home. Now the reporting by Ugandans have improved. And we hope that within the next three weeks, virtually all Ugandans who have overstayed their visas will be able to report at the detention center and be able to do a free ticket to come back home. That was Henry Okello Oyam, Uganda's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs. You are speaking with Douglas Umpuga on the phone from Kampala. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, October 26th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. President Joseph Biden Jr. on Tuesday announced the U.S. delegation to the inauguration this Friday of Lesotho's newly elected prime minister, Sokone Samuel Matekane. The delegation will be led by Alice P. Albright, chief executive officer of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Other members are Maria Brewer, U.S. ambassador to the Kingdom of Lesotho, Lois Pace, assistant secretary for global affairs, at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and Paula Garcia Tufro, the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Development, Global Health, and Humanitarian Affairs at the National Security Council. The World Health Organization on Tuesday dedicated a state-of-the-art oxygen production plant in Liberia. The facility is supported by the WHO's country office for Liberia with funding from the German and Canadian governments and the United States Agency for International Development. The plant is expected to ease some of the hurdles facing Liberia because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Moses Gaziewu reports from Monrovia. The need for oxygen for patients such in countries around the world with the outbreak of COVID-19. Liberia had only a few small facilities for making and distributing the gas, which is needed to help with respiratory infections that cause a shortness of breath. Health officials say that because of a lack of sufficient oxygen supplies, only three or four critically ill people that they were able to receive the necessary support. The World Health Organization has been working with countries to resolve the problem. Dr. Peter Clement is the WHO country representative to Liberia. These needs were exposed by the COVID. At the time, intensive care units were not there. There was a demand for oxygen, which was critical. You could see people struggling for life. Simply, they can't breathe. WHO as an organization globally encouraged the country to do assessment of their capacities, including oxygen capacities, intensive care units. At the unveiling ceremony, President George Weah said the establishment of the plant is the result of equal relations between Liberia and its partners who helped build the facility. President Weah said the oxygen facility is a booster for the entire health sector. These investments in oxygen plants will not only help in addressing NN resurgence in the COVID-19 pandemic, but will importantly serve all hospitals with the treatment of other perineal diseases such as 
pneumonia that tend to persist long after the pandemic. President Wea also said Liberia has made significant strides in the war against COVID-19. Our journey towards building health immunity against the pandemic is also in full swing. Liberia is winning the battle on this front with the vaccination coverage reported as being about 76 percent thereby putting us as a country in the third position on the African continent. United Nations resident coordinator in Liberia, Neil Scott, said the oxygen plant will go a long way towards improving living conditions. Investing, as the pandemic has taught us, in a health system must be at the center of development. Health, it's a gateway to security, peace, and prosperity. So let me thank you, Mr. President, your government, let me also thank the UN system, thank Germany, United States of America, Canada for this gift of this oxygen plant. The plant is expected to produce about 100 cylinders of high-quality medical oxygen per day at over 93% purity. Liberia's Health Minister Dr. Wilhelmina Jala said the content and quality will help to ease some of the concerns of Liberians. Even people in Liberia were getting the oxygen tank and hiding it in their homes. So we knew that the demand for oxygen was there together. Our partners, all of us sat together and said oxygen should be one of our priorities. So that's why we saw a lot of people die during that particular time of the pandemic because the oxygen saturation dropped to 30, 20. The oxygen plant on Bushwell Island outside Monrovia will serve an estimated population of about 2 million inhabitants in Monserrado and Maghibi counties. Liberia's health system has suffered multiple shocks, including the Ebola virus disease in 2014 and the COVID-19 pandemic. Authorities say lessons learned from these public health emergencies have highlighted the critical need to build resilient health systems with effective service delivery in the country. And Moses Gazel, VOA News, Monrovia. The Central Bank of Nigeria is marking one year since launching Africa's first digital currency, the E-Naira, which leaders hoped would boost the economy and fight inflation. But one year later, critics said the E-Naira has not lived up to expectations. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Top government officials, company executives, and central bank officials marked the first anniversary of the E-Naira on Tuesday in Lagos. During the event, officials praised the digital currency and said more than 700,000 transactions worth $18.3 million have taken place on its platform since the launch in October of last year. Officials also said the e-Naira has offered endless possibilities to Nigerians in the financial services sector. Central Bank Governor Godwin Emefile spoke during the event. As we speak today... Some of the fears that we had at the time of introducing Nigerian currency, which was predominantly centered around the risks of fraud and all that, we have not witnessed any. The EMERA is expected to enhance financial inclusion, support poverty reduction, enable direct welfare disbursement to citizens, support a resilient payment ecosystem, improve availability and usability of central bank money, facilitate diaspora remittances, and reduce the cost of processing cash. The e is Africa's first digital currency and the second in the world, 
after the sand dollar in the Bahamas. Nigerian authorities say the e-naira in theory maintains its value better than the country's actual currency, which has lost up to 40% of its value in the past year. On Monday, in the lead-up to the anniversary, the CBN held street campaigns and pushed for its adoption among local tricycle riders in many cities, including the capital. Authorities offered riders a 5% discount to encourage them to subscribe. Digital currency expert Mesaya Obuagu welcomed the campaign. I feel uh, what they are doing right now is the right step in the right direction. The central bank aims to grow its e-Naira merchant base from about 4,000 to more than 7,000 across Nigeria in the coming weeks. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. The U.S. Africa Business Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is holding its first Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the Africa Business Center on this initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa, the top 10 finalists have been decided. And for the next two weeks, we'll bring you a look at each one. Today, we hear from Frank Nana Ade from Ghana. His company, Shopper, is a business-to-business e-commerce system that provides financial services to small informal grocery shops. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big Business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is Fangana Ade, 29 years of age. I'm currently one of the co-founders and CEO of Shopper, a B2B e-commerce business here in Africa. Part of the reason why we applied to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce um, African Business Unit is for us to get the needed support and the needed resources we need to be able to digitize the informal retail space here in Africa. Being part of the top 10 is the validation that we need. It gives us the confidence to be able to convince ourselves that we are actually onto something big and we can't wait to be able to see the change we want to see in the industry. Shopper is digitizing the informal retail space here in Africa by connecting manufacturers of fast-moving consumer goods to informal retailers through our micro-distribution centers. So Shopper's platform allows these retailers to be able to, one, source inventory directly from manufacturers, or suppliers through our micro-distribution centers and have it delivered to their shop within four hours. They also get to access credit facility on our platform in the form of working capital financing to be able to grow their business and also other financial services such as insurance. An example would be when we launched our business in 2020, uh, one retailer, prior to the introduction of our credit, used to place an order on average between $11 on a weekly basis. But after we introduce our credits over time, she's been able to move from $11 on a weekly basis to now $150 in terms of other size. 
Now, this is the growth we want to see on the lives of these informal retailers by moving from a small shop to a medium shop. Winning this challenge is going to be a game changer for us because we are going to have access to the right resources, the right mentorship, and the right partners to be able to grow our business. Winning this challenge is going to ensure that we have enough resources to be able to escalate the credit offering and also be able to escalate our credit offerings by expanding to new areas and also tapping into the expertise the U.S. Chamber of Commerce would make available to us for us to be able to build the solution we want to build. That was Frank Nana Ade from Ghana. His company, Shopper, is a business-to-business e-commerce system that provides financial services to small informal grocery shops. The company is one of the 10 finalists in the Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups, organized by the U.S. Africa Business Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And that's it for this Wednesday, October 26th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington. Wishing